Hello, dear listener. I have a favor to ask you. We have a survey that we would love for you to fill out so that we can get some information to help the show. You can go to our website, nocturnepodcast.org, click the survey link at the top of the page, and it should take just a couple of minutes to fill it out. It would be a big help, and we'd really appreciate it. Thank you. This episode of Nocturne is brought to you with the support of Sock Club. This holiday season, Sock Club is delivering the perfect gift, a fun reminder that you care, sent each month with quality American-made socks. Stylish socks are sent straight to your loved one's door, featuring different designs and a personal note that can be customized each month. My last delivery included a beautiful soft pair of socks in a deep earthy plum color with cool stripes. Sock Club's note said that it's called the Rosalind, after Rosalind Franklin, who helped discover DNA. And it hopes my socks remind me that though each of us is different, we're all made of the same stuff. It's kind of funny, but this does make these socks feel even more special when I put them on. Go to SockClub.com slash Nocturne and get 15% off using discount code Nocturne. Give a little reminder of your love every month. Give Sock Club. Again, that's SockClub.com slash Nocturne with the code Nocturne. This episode is also supported by HelloFresh, the meal kit delivery service that makes cooking delicious meals fun and easy. Each week, HelloFresh creates new recipes with step-by-step instructions designed to take around 30 minutes. There are three plans to choose from, classic, veggie, and family. Each kit comes with fresh ingredients, labeled clearly and measured precisely, so you have exactly what you need, and you know which ingredients go with which recipe. This was a welcome relief to me recently when 7 o'clock rolled around and I realized I had to make dinner. I started to think about takeout pizza, but then I remembered that HelloFresh had made it easy for me to make a healthy and satisfying meal without needing to plan anything or take a lot of time. I put all the ingredients on the counter, got to work, and just 30 minutes later, I had cooked crispy chicken Milanese with yellow squash and lemony arugula. It was beautiful and delicious, and everyone was happy. Visit HelloFresh.com and use promo code Nocturne30 to save $30 off your first week of deliveries. Again, that's Nocturne30. You're listening to Nocturne. I'm Vanessa Lowe. have this image of what a Christmas tree should look like. And when you like get one that looks just like that, it's like, wow. But yeah, the ugly trees, we'd come up with different names for the different types of ugly trees. Cause there's so many types. There's the ones where like the trunk sort of splits off in the middle and it becomes like almost two trees. And then there's the one where like one whole side is bald. We call that the three side special. And we try to sell those to people. We're like, oh, you're putting it in a corner? Just get one of these. It's, it's cheaper and you won't even see that weird side. And they love that. But you start to like hate these ugly trees, partly because they're so hard to sell. 
That's Joel Shupak. Over the past several years, for the 30 or so days between Thanksgiving and Christmas, Joel has made the trek from his home in Portland, Oregon, to New York City, to guard Christmas trees at night. My main job was not to get robbed. I mean, that is kind of the main job, because what's going on is New York City is like a 24-hour city. There's people on the streets at all hours of day and night, which means that there are people buying Christmas trees in the middle of the night. There's not a lot of them, but it does happen. But the main reason that you need what's called a night watch, that was my job, I was the night watch, is there's nowhere to store the trees. They're just displayed right on the sidewalk, and there's nowhere for them to like go at night. So there has to be someone there to make sure that they're still there in the morning. People that aren't familiar with New York always ask, oh, are you like in a parking lot? Or like, like they're trying to understand where this tree stand is, because that's how it works in other cities, I guess, is they kind of set up in a parking lot. But the crazy thing about New York, and I don't think you notice this necessarily unless you really look, but the sidewalks in New York are so wide. They're enormous. So we actually set up just right on the sidewalk and even build this little shack that we can go into. And there's still plenty of room for people to walk by, even though there's just rows and rows of trees right on the sidewalk. So that being said, there's one side of the rack that's facing the street that, you know, we can't really keep an eye on all the time. So basically, we just kind of run this security cable through those trees. It's not a perfect solution, but it, it's a deterrent enough, maybe, if someone, like, is drunk and walking down the street and is like, oh, I'll just take one of those trees. So yeah, that was my main job, to basically make sure that trees don't disappear. Joel originally got the tree guarding gig as he was finishing up a bike trip across the U.S. That had taken me about five months to get from Portland, Oregon, to almost all the way to the East Coast, and I was in Vermont right before finishing the trip. And I was staying with kind of an old friend of mine, and she introduced me to this guy, Ben, and he asked me what I was doing this winter. It was probably the end of October. And he kind of offered me this opportunity. He said, I got this gig, I'm selling Christmas trees in New York City, and he needed someone to basically guard his trees at night, was essentially the job. Our tree stand was right in the heart of Washington Heights neighborhood. Washington Heights starts at around 155th Street on the west side of New York City and goes until around Dykeman Street to the north. It's like a largely Dominican neighborhood, and there's other Spanish-speaking people that live there too. And it's slowly like more white people are moving there, but it really has that character of, of like a really large Dominican population. So on my block, there was the apartment building that we were right in front of. On the corner, there was a, like a barbershop. And then, I mean, pretty much like on every corner, there's some type of bodega corner store that sells sandwiches and random little snack foods um, and cigarettes and things like that. You know, there was probably like 10 in like a two block radius. Across the street, there's a McDonald's and a Dunkin' Donuts and a couple of Mexican restaurants. Further up the street, there was more like Dominican food, restaurants, diners. People tell me stories of times where there were like riots and stuff, like right there, where there'd just be like police on every corner and cars on fire. But it wasn't like that when I was there. Joel would start his 12-hour shift at the tree stand at 8 p.m. In the 30 days that the stand was up, he was there every day. 
So what that did is it sort of granted us and me kind of like a privileged position in the community that we kind of plunked ourselves down into. We would just make friends with people really easily and people would want to talk to us and be around us. And also we were just there all the time. So we just saw everything that was happening on that corner. The main time that there were customers would be kind of right as I got on my shift. A lot of families, a lot of couples, really of all stripes, black, white, Spanish-speaking, Asian, like all sorts of people were buying trees. But as the night wore on, the customers thinned out. An occasional night dweller would buy a tree. People that work all sorts of weird, odd hours in New York, like myself, (laughs) after getting off, you know, like a bartending shift, they'd buy a tree, that kind of thing. Most of Joel's job, though, was not about selling trees. It was more tree-sitting. There were definitely trees that disappeared. The job at night is there's a lot of downtime. Like, there is, like, stuff to do. Like, I'm supposed to sweep up a lot, and, you know, I get deliveries of new trees. But I'm also just kind of supposed to walk around and just kind of monitor things and just make sure, you know, people aren't just hanging out and stealing trees. So there would definitely be times when I would kind of do a loop around the backside of the tree rack and there would just be like an obvious hole where there should have been a tree. And sometimes I would be like, maybe I moved that tree and I forgot because I was delirious. But I'm pretty sure that occasionally trees would go missing. And we would get reports too sometimes that people would be like around the corner with a Christmas tree trying to sell it for $10. So I never saw that happening, but it wouldn't surprise me at all. The most bold thing that I ever saw happen was there was one night, it was probably the middle of the season. I was going across the street to see if this Mexican restaurant that I would sometimes order from was still open. And we were right on Broadway, which is a pretty big, wide street. So I ran across Broadway. There's no cars. It was middle of the night. And I just basically got as far enough to see like, okay, this restaurant is closed. And then I walk back across the street. And as I'm coming back, I see, basically just I see a tree walking down the street. Like, I don't see a person, I just see, like, a tree, and it's kind of slowly moving up the street. And my first thought is, like, oh, I wonder where that guy got that tree. And then I put it together and realized, oh, he just walked by my stand and took a tree and is now walking up the street. So I ran up to him, and I <laughs> yelled at him, and I said, yo, that's my tree. And and he stopped, and he handed it over and he was like oh sorry I thought I just I didn't see anyone there so I just thought they were free and and then he and then he walked away so that was the only time I ever like confronted a thief and it was fine he didn't put up a fight I mean he's not gonna be able to run away the trees are big and heavy I actually remember that specific tree because it was like a beautiful big wonderful perfect tree and I sold it the next day for like a hundred dollars Working at the tree lot, Joel got to know his trees. At any given time, there was 200 trees, something like that. So there's different types of trees. There's like balsam fir and Fraser fir that are the two main ones. Now we sell Douglas firs also, but Fraser's are like fancier. The balsams have more of a kind of classic Christmas tree look. They're real like feathery and very delicate looking almost. And they have more of like the shape that people kind of associate more with Christmas trees and they smell really nice. Whereas the Frasers are way hardier. They'll last way past Christmas if you want to keep up your tree. Whereas if you buy a balsam fir like at the beginning of the season, it could die before Christmas if it's not well cared for. So that's kind of the trade-off. 
Frasers are more like the premium tree. People who know trees like will go and be like, oh, I'm looking for a Fraser fir because that's like the tree to get. There's a funny thing about Christmas in New York. In a city where most of the living trees are clumped together in just a few areas, right around Thanksgiving, new clumps of trees start popping up all over this mostly concrete and asphalt setting. They bring an element of the absurd, if you pause to think about it. And that absurdity only heightens the spirit of celebration and goodwill. People loved me just because I was there with Christmas trees. People would just walk by and like smell the air and because to them, me and all this whole like army of people that come and sell trees on the sidewalk, we are like a symbol of that season. And that season is really important to people. One of the cool things about being a tree person in New York is the people that live there have this really specific association with the with the tree sellers, I think and kind of think of us almost like not even as people, but as like a fixture of the neighborhood or something. So this funny thing happens where people think they know you from the year before because we all sort of look the same to New Yorkers. It's really obvious actually, like we really look, there's like a look to the tree people. We just don't look like New Yorkers, first of all, and we don't look like people who live in Washington Heights. You know, we have flannel vests and like Carhartt pants and we usually have like big knives hanging off our belts which you're not supposed to have in New York, but we just do it and no one ever cares because we're tree people. So people would be like, oh, it's so good to see you again. And, but I'd never met them before. It was just because I just represented this thing that they find so charming. There's a little extra dash of absurdity to this idea of tree seller as a symbol of Christmas. I am Jewish. I'm like quite Jewish <laughs> even. My dad is a rabbi, that's how Jewish I am. We never celebrated Christmas. The first time I ever celebrated Christmas, I think I was probably in my early 20s. I didn't like tell people I was Jewish. Sometimes people would be like, oh, you don't get to be with your family for Christmas. Sometimes I would say that I was Jewish if I thought that it would be well received. I mainly just thought of it as part of the bizarreness and the kind of absurdity of the job itself. But I think there's actually quite a few Jews that work selling trees. I feel the need to insert a sort of advisory here. It's not for adult content, though. It's more, if you live in New York and want to hold on to your miracle on 34th Street idea of Christmas, you probably don't want to hear this next part. So people would sort of approach the stand, and I think they're always operating under the assumption that I grew the trees and I cut down the trees and just kind of like put them in my truck and drove them down to the city. And that's not at all how it works. The way it works is there's these enormous plantations of Christmas trees that are grown in Quebec, that are grown in North Carolina, in Pennsylvania, also in Oregon, all, kind of all over the place. I don't consider these real trees. They're a commodity. They're like mushrooms or like broccoli. They're almost like a factory product. It's this huge industry that employs a lot of people. And the way that it works for me and my situation was I work for a company that has been selling trees in New York since the 70s. They manage, I think it's up to 19 stands around mainly upper Manhattan. And they find people to run these stands and then they deal with all the logistics. They get loads of trees from these farms and then have people distribute them throughout the stands in the middle of the night. So there's this feeling that we kind of 
want to give off that were these homegrown kind of, I don't know, like woodsy yokels that are coming down with our trees, but we're actually like part of this huge Christmas industrial complex. It's a funny thing to navigate. You don't want to say too much about that because you don't want to like ruin people's image of what you're doing. Because going and buying a tree from this guy on the corner is meaningful to people. I mean, they've been doing that for years, for generations. I realized kind of early on that that was part of my role was to, was to be that for people, was to kind of be that connection to the natural world that a lot of New Yorkers just don't have at all. For a couple of hours each night, Joel would strike a balance between the spirit and the business of Christmas. At a certain point, you could kind of guess of what people want when you see them. People would kind of be dressed a little fancier and you'd kind of be like, oh, they probably want the fancy tree or the big tree. Or like, you know, these big families would come and you could kind of tell they don't have a lot of money. They always want like the nicest small tree and they're going to like haggle you on the price. Trees cost roughly $10 a foot. So like a five foot tree is 50 bucks ish. But this is the thing that, um, well, (laughs) I don't know if I want people in New York City to know this, but really like the trees cost what we think they are worth. So it's not like the trees come with some sort of price tag that we're supposed to follow. At a certain point, we just know, like, I can get $60 for that tree, and that's what you get for that tree. And it's kind of like, for some people, you maybe charge them a little more than other people would want to pay because you know they're going to pay it if they're kind of, like, a little fancier looking. Or they're, they're looking at a bunch of trees and they're not asking you about price yet. They're paying more than someone else. But I just want to say, like, in defense of that, it was sort of like Robin Hood style where we're kind of overcharging the wealthier clients so that we can give better deals to the families that come that don't have as much money. And that's not like, no one like told me to do that, but I I think that's what we're all doing. Once the families and people getting off work went home, Joel was mostly alone, watching the tree stand or sitting in his shack on the sidewalk. The contrast between day and night on Joel's corner couldn't have been more stark. The first night is absolutely the hardest night. I have such vivid memories of that first night because I'd never been to that corner before. I've never done this job before. And I'm like sitting in this shack and you can conceptualize like you're in a shack and you feel like you're in this like separate space, but you also can look down and the ground of the shack is the sidewalk. It's like the dirty sidewalk. So you're really just sitting on the sidewalk essentially with this sort of flimsy wall around you. And everything was terrifying. Like all these really sort of wild seeming people were just walking to and fro, like selling drugs and yelling at each other. I felt like I just had no concept of what was happening around me and it was pretty terrifying. Any crazy thing that was gonna happen was gonna happen while I was working. I don't know, man. Like people were throwing shit around. Is that gunshots? What? Those weren't gunshots. I didn't hear gunshots, no. Someone threw a chair. So I would see fist fights. I would see people just get really, like, intoxicated throughout the night. All night, it would sort of just get progressively less and less the kind of people that I would maybe want to associate with. 
when you start your shift, there's still people kind of walking around that are getting off work, that have, you know, more of a mainstream existence. And then, you know, people are kind of going out to dinner and to doing things. And then it starts to get like later and later. Then there's more like kind of wild teenagers kind of roaming around or like that kind of scene. And then at a certain point, really the only people on the street are either selling or looking for drugs or sex. Joel started to realize that as he guarded the tree stand for his friend Ben, who sold the trees during the day, their experiences had very little in common. Ben and I had the same job there, but, you know, he was interacting with this whole set of people that I never even saw. And I was dealing with this whole subsection of the world that he never even knew existed. I remember this one particular guy, he sort of like came up and was like super friendly and good natured and we're kind of having a good conversation. And, and then he like kind of comes back 10 minutes later and then he's like all excited because he just got some Coke and he's trying to like get me to do Coke with him. And I don't really do drugs. So he like put it on, I guess this is one way people do Coke. Like you get a, your little baggie of Coke and then you like put a key into it, like a house key. And then you pull it out so there's like a little bit of cocaine on your house key and then you like snort it off of that. So I just remember him sort of thrusting this key in my face, like being like, come on, man, like have a bump. And I was like, no, man, I'm not into it. And he was like kind of aggressive. And then, you know, he left for a while and then he like would come back 10 minutes later, like even more hopped up. And like this happened for hours and hours. I watched this guy just get more and more like crazy high. And, the, you know, the beginning of the night, he was this really friendly, nice guy. And then I would just see him become like an animal. He got insane. There weren't a lot of times where I felt really in danger, but there definitely were some times. And there was a lot of drugs that were being sold and used on that corner. So it's just drug dealers and prostitutes and, you know, their clientele, so to speak. Which is like not who I'm typically associating with. For the most part, I feel like I was ignored by those people. But then, know like at a certain point I would I started to kind of more befriend people who were like really different from me because those were my only choices if I wanted to have friends these are the people I had to choose from I remember I, I befriended this woman who was you know like addicted to crack and would come and talk to me and like would tell me about how she has a daughter who she like can't have in her life anymore because she can't stop doing drugs and would read me these heartbreaking poems that she would write and I'd never stopped to, I mean this sounds really maybe silly but you kind of have this image in your head of what a crack addict is like, you know but then, you know, I actually like get to sit down and talk with someone who's addicted to crack and I'm like, oh this is just a person who needs help so it would more and more turn into that. I would just kind of befriend these people who were homeless or struggling with different things but that being said, I never fully trusted anyone. That's really the truth. Because I, I was in such a vulnerable position. I didn't know anything. People would try to scam me all the time. People would come up with some story about their wife is in the hospital and they need money to get to the hospital. And then their stories never made sense. They never added up. I think I was able to ward off most potential scams. I think there was a couple guys that got me that, you know, I gave a couple bucks to. 
I was always a little scared. I mean, I, I was like so out of my element, but I also felt like no one was really after me. And there were some times when I did feel that people were kind of sussing me out. Like they would sort of ask questions. People that were obviously not looking to buy a tree would come up and just be kind of like sniffing around, like trying to figure out if I had a bunch of cash. You know, they'd kind of be like, oh, how much do trees cost? How many trees do you sell in a night? Just trying to like do the math in their head to like see if it was worth it to try to rob me. And the, the truth is I'd never had that much cash, but like we never wanted to like tell people if we had cash or didn't have cash. We kind of wanted to just keep that invisible to folks because we didn't want to be a target. Throughout the long nights, Joel's life became populated by some regular characters who he could count on for consistency, if not friendship. There was the big angry guy he and Ben nicknamed the Beast. He just looked like he was just gonna like rip our limbs off. He was just like big, he had his hat pulled down so we like couldn't really see his eyes. But I would see the Beast every night. He would just be like strolling down the street with his muscular arms swinging by. And I was always afraid that he would snap and do something terrible. But nothing, nothing ever happened with the Beast. Then there was Polly, who looked like an ex-boxer and would hang out panhandling and getting progressively more drunk throughout the night. Polly, I would see every night. Sometimes I'd see him almost the whole time I was there. He would be a presence. Polly would stand right in front of the stand and kind of like hassle people for money. I really didn't want to be around him usually because he was like bad for business. But I couldn't escape him. He was right in front of me for all night. So I just kind of had to like be with him. But at a certain point, I started to have some affection for him and started to kind of worry about him. Like if I didn't see him for a while, I'd be like, where's Polly? Towards the end of the night, sometimes he would be like really fucked up to the point where I'm just like, Polly, you should go to bed. Like go to bed, Polly. It was just painful to watch this person unravel in front of me every night, pretty much. But eventually he would, eventually he would go to bed. And then there was like the lady who would roll by her cart, picking up cans. I'd see her every night. I would say hi to her. And then, and then there was sort of like no one for a while. There is a sort of a period where there was really no one. They say that New York is like a city that never sleeps, but there's like an hour where someone is, <laughs> where most people are sleeping anyway. On the list of things I'd never thought about when I passed Christmas tree stands in New York over the years is the fear, boredom, and practical concerns of the tree sellers. I mean, we can talk more about <laughs> how I had to go to the bathroom if you want, but the fact of the matter is that there was no like simple solution if I had to poop. If it was really the middle of the night, it was complicated. The reason the job was so grueling was just the amount of hours of being in the same place and monotony of the job and, and having to stay awake all night. That's a really hard thing to do if you're not used to it. I'm in general like a get up early and go to bed early kind of person. When I was thinking of doing the job, I guess it occurred to me that it would be hard, and but it mainly occurred to me that I was going to make a bunch of money and that it would be interesting. In much the same way that the corner in Washington Heights would transform as the sun went down, Joel started to find that he was undergoing his own nightly metamorphosis. I would get to the stand, you know, at 8 p.m. or so, and usually I would have a lot of energy. I just kind of like woke up, ate some breakfast, even though it's 8 p.m. 
and there'd be sort of like a lot of activity. There'd be some sales and Ben would still be there for a little bit and we'd kind of talk about the day. And then things would sort of slowly wind down and then there would just be this slow progression into just like another state of mind is kind of how I would describe it. And then it would just get later and later. And then from the hours of 3 a.m. to 5 a.m., it's like doing Christmas trees in those hours is like a part of my life that kind of exists in this separate place that has no connection to anything else. It's almost like I would just be in a different life somehow where I really had no connection with who I was or where I lived or who my friends were or like who my parents are or like what my interests are. And I would just be this strange figure kind of like drifting around this this tree stand, like sweeping up conifer needles and this woozy body feeling, you know, like when you're when you're up at an hour when your body's like not supposed to be awake. And so it would kind of just feel like I would just lose all, I don't know what the right word is, but all, all of like, all of what made me who I was almost. It was psychedelic. That's the only way I can really describe it. And sometimes in a way that was fascinating and wild, and sometimes in a way that was just like terrifying and dark. And then like after this whole process of kind of losing track of who I am, then the sun would start to come up and just like little glowing blueness would sort of start to creep up on the buildings and then like color would start to like emerge out of the murky grayness that was the night because that's the thing like when there's not enough light you can't really see colors and then suddenly like the sun would splash on the buildings and the whole world would come back and I would come back it was just like revelation every morning was like just I would be so full of joy and excitement. It was as if I died and was reborn every night. The job itself was so grueling and psychologically demanding that, you know, it would be very easy to go from utter despair and hopelessness to jubilation very quickly. <laughs> I would say that every night was some version of hell. There were certainly joyful moments throughout the night, but I would always reach that sense of almost like disassociation from my soul. And it would reach a point where like, I would start to be like, oh, I'm kind of feeling off. And then I'd look at my phone and be like, oh, it's 3 a.m. That's when this starts. <laughs> I started to just kind of expect that and like know that it ended. In the dark, empty, disjointed hours before the city edged back to life, there was one constant presence. I definitely had an emotional connection with the trees. In a lot of ways, the trees were my most constant companion. My whole day, which was really the night, was just involved with organizing these trees, moving these trees, pruning branches of trees, trying to make these trees as presentable as possible. Just being like up in these trees, so on one level, I'm just intimately involved with every tree that comes through. Every tree that is sold and ends up in these people's houses, I touched and had a part in. So in the one sense, like I love the trees, 
just in the way that you just have to love anything that you're that close to. On the other hand, I hated the trees because I hated having to deal with them. I hated how they smelled. It's a smell that I associate with long nights of loneliness and this like physically grueling job. Amongst all of this, a tree that was beautiful and perfect, I would love. Sometimes I would be sad to see a tree go that I really liked. Or like I can tell that tree did not go to the right person. But sometimes you make the right match with the right person and the tree and it's like magical. It's like they fall in love right in front of you. You know, you like you show them one tree and they're like, okay, all right, that, that, that'll do. And then you show them like another tree. They're like, oh, that's too, that's too skinny. And then you show them another tree and they're just like, oh my God. And you know, so I'm like a matchmaker. So for Joel, the job sometimes left him feeling like he had a meaningful role in the festivities. And at other times, like he was losing all sense of his connection to the world. The contrast wasn't lost on him. The deeper and deeper you look at anything, the sort of crazier it is. There was such a dichotomy of the reason I was there to sell trees to people, this sort of like festive holiday thing, and what I actually had to see and witness and what my job actually entailed and the people I would have to actually interact with. One way I kind of thought about it was, it's like the idea of the omniscient narrator or whatever, like in a story. That's kind of how it felt to be there, that I just saw everything, that I saw the desperation and the poverty and the drug abuse. But I would also see how much joy these trees were bringing to people. You know, that like all of this hullabaloo and production and and moving parts and all this money involved to like get this frickin' tree from hundreds of miles away to the streets of New York to go into someone's home for like a couple weeks. It's like a lot of, it's a big ordeal. And it was really worth it to these people. So to be a part of that stream of events, there was something kind of mystical about that, that I wasn't in touch with all the time, but that I could tap into, you know? that I was a part of this this sort of special symbol, which was funny because I had no connection to it, but I like respected that it meant something to people. After 30 days of almost becoming one with this corner in Washington Heights, getting to know the ebb and flow of the people, the boredom and fear, the nightly death and rebirth, as Joel put it, after a month, it would all quietly disappear. The last couple days are sort of spent taking everything down, loading everything back up in the same trucks that they came in. There's just like a few trees left. We just kind of slowly disassemble our little kingdom of trees. The racks get taken down and they're just, you know, become just a pile of lumber on the street. And then one of the trucks comes and we load up the lumber. The last thing to go is our little shack. We disassemble the shack. It always surprises me how quickly, like, it all just comes down. It's like the circus is over and, like, everything just packs up. And then the last thing you do is you just have, like, the last few things on the street 
for pickup and you just are, you have no shack and you're just like standing on the side of the street like just waiting for the final pickup and it's just really wild to see that transformation because you take this space and you create this whole environment and experience and like livelihood for yourself right there on the sidewalk and then when you take it all down there's just nothing of it left Maybe the primary feeling is relief to be done because it's, it's so exhausting. It's so intense. But also there's a sadness when we take the shack down and just these little things like these, these little walls and different signs and whatever things we put up that sort of created a space and gave meaning to this place that we spent a month. Once they're gone, you're just some other guy standing on the street. And yeah, there's something kind of profound about that. Just how little it takes to make a place have meaning. Or There's also a sense like when our trees are up and we're there, we belong there. That's how it feels. And we're like welcome there and we're like a part of the community. And as soon as everything's kind of wrapped up and we don't have like a reason to be there, we're just these weird outsiders that don't belong. It's really strange. And maybe not everyone feels, feels that way, but that's how I feel. Once that shack is gone, I want to get the hell out of there. It's like it's not my sidewalk. We're tree people. Deck the halls with boughs of holly You've been listening to Nocturne. I'm Vanessa Lowe. Nocturne is produced by me and was created by myself and Kent Sparling, who also composed the theme music. Production help on this episode by Joel Schupack. Joel also has a beautiful new podcast called Square Mile. Each episode is a poetic exploration of a different square mile of space somewhere on the planet. You can find it at squaremilepodcast.com and anywhere else that you listen to podcasts. You can find out more about the show at our website, nocturnepodcast.org. You can also support the show by clicking donate at the top of the page. Thank you to everyone who's already supporting us. Nocturne is produced with support from KCRW's Independent Producer Project, which provides resources to creative storytellers around the world. Thank you, KCRW. Thanks to HelloFresh for supporting this episode of Nocturne. Visit HelloFresh.com and use promo code Nocturne30 to save $30 off your first week of deliveries. Nocturne is proud to be a member of The Herd, a collective of smart and beautiful storytelling podcasts. Find out more at theherdradio.com. Thanks for listening. See the blazing before us. Strike the harp and join the chorus. Follow me in merry measure. While I tell of your treasure.
Blessed.